Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 14. We'll be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, they say. That's a way of getting at the the simple observation that not every song is as appealing to one person as it is to the next, and not every not every painting, not every work of art is as beautiful to one onlooker as, as the next. Oh, there are ways to get down to what makes one person or one painting or one scene beautiful and the other not so much. But, but it rings true, doesn't it? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, when God makes a Christian, when the Holy Spirit changes a heart from stone to flesh, when, when Jesus Christ becomes your Lord, you become a new creation. And one part of being a new creature in Christ is that you see things in a different way. And what is beautiful to Jesus becomes beautiful to you. Well, this morning we're going to begin by reading together about one scene that was beautiful to Jesus. Let's read together Mark 14. We'll stop in verse 9. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Well, this is God's word for us. This morning, we begin with a scene, a story of hostility and hospitality. Really, it's a story of an event that takes place in the course of hospitality, but in the context of hostility. You can imagine as we begin the sermon here, we're standing outside on the street looking, as it were, at a house, because that's where all this happened. And while he was at Bethany in in the house of Simon the leper. And there are some things going on outside this house, and there are some things that are going on inside this house. Outside the house, there are some hostile characters moving about. It was now two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was a hot time in Jerusalem. All the pilgrims would have come. Thousands on thousands would be in the city that were not normally in the city And there were leaders among them, the chief priests and the scribes, were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and and to kill him. Hostile characters with hostile intents. Kill is a strong word. 
Most parents will remember that moment when their child first says, I will kill you, or not, not, to another kid, even in play. And it's one where you say, time out. That's not a word that we use. And when you find yourself saying, uh, we're going to plot to kill him, when, when Mark puts that word on their lips, if you will, well, that's a pretty serious moment. Jesus has talked at this point about how he will be killed, but this is the first time that word is put to paper for the intent of his opponents. You can imagine they would have gotten good and after it, except for the crowds. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. I suppose whether that would be an uproar in protest of what they would do to him or an uproar in celebration of what they would do to him. They didn't want a lot of noise. They just wanted Jesus to go away and go away quietly. And the way that was going to happen was by his arrest and his killing. Oh, just imagine how much evil is held back in this world on account of the trouble that it would bring and the distraction that it would cause and the noise that would follow. And here, evil for a time is restrained by this this threat of an uproar from the people. Well, there are some things going on outside and around this house in the community, certainly over the hill in Jerusalem. There's some things going on inside the house. What we have here in Bethany is a familiar scene. It's Jesus sitting down in a house, eating food with people. It's an intimate scene. They no doubt share a meal. It's relaxed. He's reclining at table with them. And here again, Jesus is found advancing his mission as those who follow him open their homes for conversation and company with Christ and others. And you and I can be about that too. It is Jesus's too obvious, easy to overlook, not very programmatic, not on the church calendar, but ever effective. It works whether you've got a church building or not. It works for a big church and a small church. It is his strategy for the spread of his name. One among others, that is hospitality. And we're in the home here of Simon the leper. That's all we know about him. He's Simon, not another one you might think, and not another one. He's Simon the leper. Now, it's likely he wasn't a leper still. It may be that he was healed. He was known as Simon the leper. He likely wouldn't have gathered this kind of company. This kind of a meeting wouldn't have happened if he was still a leper. But in any case, it was his house. It was a guy's house. And he opened his doors for company. Outside the house, some things are going on. And inside the house, some things are going on. I can't help but think of Psalm chapter 2, which speaks about the king, heaven's king. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is exactly what's happening outside. But he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Kiss the son, 
take refuge in him. And here in the house are some who are taking refuge in Jesus in hostile times. Yes, this is a a scene of hospitality in the setting of a world hostile to Jesus. And this was the most hostile moment that the world has has ever known. There are things that man sees in Jesus and there are things that the Lord sees in Jesus. And part of becoming a Christian is coming to see Jesus like God sees him as heaven's king, greater than any earthly king, more powerful and more sure and more authoritative and certainly more more good. So here we are inside a house for the better part of our morning. Well, we'll take a look at two characters and then we'll consider two questions, two characters. First, let's consider how much Jesus was worth to one woman whom we meet in the first half of verse 3 to verse 9. One woman, we don't have her name, she's anonymous to us. She's not unimportant for that reason, but we don't know her name. Watch her, watch her devotion In this scene, Mark draws special attention to her devotion, her extravagant devotion, her extravagant, even humanly unreasonable commitment to Jesus. Mark draws attention to the extravagant nature of what she does. We consider who she is as a woman when she comes to Jesus and breaks this flask. She does so in a, in a setting in which it wouldn't really be her place to take the lead, if you, if you will. It wouldn't be her place to draw this kind of attention to herself. There's a certain social cost that's involved with the scene that she makes. Consider what she has in her hands. She has a flask in her hands an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. It's worth 300 denarii. That would be about 300 days wages, about a year of pay contained in this little flask of hers. It was expensive. It was rare. This stuff would come from some plant in India, which is interesting. Pure nard. I don't know what it would have smelled like. It was used to prepare a body for burial. It was a fragrance. It was a kind of a perfume. There are a lot of bad smells in the world. But if there's one smell that costs this much to contain in a small flask and you get it all the way from a root in India, that's got me curious. It's also a flask that would have been passed down. This would be a family heirloom. Not the kind of thing you have a whole bunch laying around the house and you pick up at the store around the corner for use in the morning. No, this would have been passed down. Its purpose would have been likely for her dowry in the course of marriage or if she was not married, it would have been used on the occasion of her death to prepare her body for burial, surely to cover the smell. Well, what does she do with it? This is an extravagant scene considering who she is, what she's got in her hand and what she does with it. She breaks this thing over Jesus, poured it over 
his head. I've never seen anything like this. It would have been obnoxious. It would have been a conversation stopper. I'm not sure what they were talking about. I'm sure he was in the middle of things. He was reclining at table with them. What is she doing? She holds nothing back. She breaks this flask. She doesn't pour a little bit out with plans to keep some of the rest. She doesn't pour it all out with plans to use the flask later. She is all in. She breaks the flask. There's no holding back and there's no looking back. Here in the pouring out of this ointment on on the Lord Jesus, it is as if she is pouring out her savings, pouring pouring out even her future on the head of Christ. Surely she knows what she's doing. Surely she knows who's before her. There's no holding back for this woman. There's no looking back for her. And there is no escaping the meaning of this act. There's no escaping the the distraction of this, this act. It is arresting. It is alarming. It evokes a visceral response in those who are who are with her. And let's listen to their response. It's it's indignant. It's what it is. They ask a question. It says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, we may presume this was the disciples, why was the ointment wasted like that? That's quite a word. They're likely pretty sure they know that this wasn't the proper use for this ointment. She's nuts. Why was it wasted like this? Now, here's the rationale. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now, that sounds like a good enough motive. But if I know the human heart, what I think is really going on is they're terribly annoyed with what she's just done. It was ridiculous according to their own math. That's a lot of money. And this reason feels great. (laughs) This is a self-righteous reason. She could have given that to the poor. (laughs) Well, they're not thinking they ever would have suggested that. If she was going to waste it on Jesus, they could have just given it away. No one consider now how how they speak to her and they scolded her. So they're talking to themselves. They're leaning over. And then somebody speaks up and tells her what they think and tells her what she needs to think about what just happened, maybe what she needs to do about it. It's an indignant response. But it's met with a commendation by Jesus. Jesus' response is very different. In fact, Jesus is not only responding to her, but he's he's responding to them. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you whenever you want. You can can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body for burial. That's interesting. And truly, I say to you, where the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. 
So those who are comfortable with Jesus, even in this kind of a hostile environment, nevertheless saw what she did as wasteful. But here again, the disciples are not tracking with Jesus. For Jesus, what she did was beautiful. Their minds are fixed now on this subject of benevolence and and giving to the poor. And Jesus doesn't say it's wrong to do that. He says it's, it's good to do that. And you can give to them whenever you want. You will always have the poor with you, which is a reminder to us in this age for those who believe that all things will be made right and that there will be no poverty in the new creation, that there is no human way to get rid of all kinds of problems in this age, including the problem of poverty. No, and at our best, we are generous and we give and we help and we give wisely in ways that help and don't hurt and all that's for another day. But Jesus says, you'll always have the poor and you can give to them whenever you want. But you'll never, all not always have me. There's something about this particular moment of history and in, in the life of these people in this home with Jesus that she gets and that, that the others don't. They're fixed on benevolence and Jesus is focused on his burial and she is focused on his burial. I think. Maybe she doesn't know what she's doing exactly. She's following her instincts. The most valuable thing she has, she's going to pour over Jesus as a, as a blessing to him. But it does seem likely to me that she has connected the dots She would not be aloof to the hostile environment and the hostility that is picking up. She's been in Bethany. Maybe she's been crossing the valley to Jerusalem. No doubt she's heard about the encounters over there. Maybe she's picked up on Jesus' teaching about his coming death and resurrection. She senses things are coming to a head. I'm filling in blanks here. But it would explain why Jesus could say, she's anointed my body for, for burial. She's done what she, what she could. So we can say that giving to the poor is important. And there are all manner of important things that those who follow Jesus ought to be about in this world. But there is nothing more important than the worship of Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't save us merely to get about being good people and doing good by others. Jesus saves us so that we might know him and all of his goodness and worship him for all of his goodness and out of the overflow of the knowledge of that goodness to do good works and to do good by others and to to give to the poor. There's certainly a a priority and that comes into sharp relief in this moment in this house on this evening. How much was Jesus worth to this woman? Jesus was worth everything to this woman. Let's contrast that now with a man in the story. How much was Jesus worth to one man? Verses 10 and 11. We're back outside. Watch with me the movement. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, 
went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. The movement, he went, he left the house. He sought an opportunity. You have to wonder what his emotion was, what he was feeling in this act of betrayal. We know what those were feeling and experiencing in their hearts who, who were met by Judas. They were glad and they promised to give him money. They were glad in their hearts. The problem at the head of the chapter is they're not sure how they're going to get him. How are they going to arrest Jesus and kill him? Certainly with all this hustle and bustle in Jerusalem, the streets would have been filled, corners and alleyways and doors. It would have been hard to find him in the commotion, hard to get him anywhere to do anything to him in the midst of the commotion, hard to keep from there being more commotion. Well, here's how it happens. Someone from the inside is going to betray him. Judas Iscariot. And when they heard it, of course, they were glad. Problem solved. We've got an insider now. We've got a mole. We've got a spy. Well, I wonder what Judas was feeling. Mark seems to highlight the extravagant nature of his betrayal. The extent of his betrayal. Verse 10, Judas Iscariot who was one of the 12. We know that. We know Judas was one of the 12. We know Judas was one of the disciples. But there's something about that status which is apt at this moment. Who was one of the 12? Jesus surrounded himself with, well, he was followed by crowds. He had some 70 that that identified with him and he identified with more closely. And then there was this this set of 12, and then there was an inner circle of three and one who was particularly close with Christ. But his 12 disciples, whom he called to himself, Judas, whom he called to himself, was one of the 12. When they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money. That highlights something of this betrayal as well. What, what it was that Judas was in for, out to out to get. He says, betray him twice in just two or three sentences in order to betray him to them. And at the end, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And that word sought gives this sense of commitment and planning and persistence and laying schemes. Now Judas has a mission of his own tucked into the 12 of Jesus' disciples, he's no longer following Jesus. He is seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. Why did Judas do this? I don't imagine that Jesus started out following Jesus, thinking about where this would, would lead for him. Maybe he was disappointed in how things were, were going with Jesus. Jesus had entered Jerusalem days earlier to fanfare. He was welcomed by those who were looking for a Messiah. As we've said, they didn't know 
all that it meant for him to be the Messiah. They weren't expecting the cross to come, but there were cries and shouts and songs and celebration at the arrival of the Messiah to Jerusalem. And the disciples haven't been tracking with Jesus entirely, but maybe Judas, the least of them, he had high expectations for how this was going to go and how it would go for him. And those don't appear to be met. In fact, it's been one blunder after another from his perspective. Jesus is only making enemies. And now we're at Jerusalem and things are looking bad. So he throws in his lot. He decides who he's siding with. Now, I imagine Judas was disappointed in Jesus and disappointed in how it was going for him as a follower of Jesus and what it was apparently costing him. Was he jealous of the other disciples, some who were closer with Jesus than others? I'm not sure. What we do know is that there's money involved. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And that was enough for him. Now, it's not always obvious to us why one person betrays Jesus and strays from the faith and leaves altogether. We might wish we could get it all down to a one moment or one thought or one belief or one argument or one encounter. If you've strayed from Christ and you've left him, but you're here, you may not even know how it began. You may not know why you're here this morning. You may know why you're here this morning, but that you don't believe, but you may not be able to follow the the story all the way back to when you, when you really did leave him, when you really did decide or understand why. But there is one thing that we know for sure, and that is about Judas, that he did not value Jesus for who he is. He did not value Jesus like this woman valued Jesus. Now this woman, she sacrifices her future She gives up her future and the recognition of the moment that she's in and the worth of her Lord. But this Judas, who ought to know him good and well, sacrifices Jesus for some 30 shekels. So it's possible to be comfortable with Jesus. It's possible to be around Jesus, if you will. There's hardly a better position in history than Judas's position, humanly speaking, to have walked with Christ and to heard him teach and to, to know him that closely, to observe his interactions. But here we have what's in his heart coming out. And his heart is one of stone. Now, friend, I, I commit to you from this text that you will not stay with Jesus If you are not with Jesus today for his sake, under the kind of pressures that these disciples are under, I mean, we've been promised our own pressures from Jesus, persecution. And in the last chapter, last week, we think think it may well have been about the cross and resurrection in the first place. And the pressures these disciples would be under to stray and to betray and to put their guard down and to leave Jesus and to flee to him at the wrong time from shame on account of him. And Jesus has prepared us for these kinds of things ourselves. Here here under this mounting pressure, surrounded by 
those who would want to kill Jesus, one says, I'm out. I'm done. I'm not following him any further. He was never in it for Jesus' sake. So the heart of the Bible, the heart of Christianity, God's heart for you today is that you would be in this, in this room, that you would be in this book, that you would be in this thing called Christianity, that you would be in this church as a a covenant member for Jesus' sake and for nothing else. Because this is where it goes. Two characters, a woman and a man. Now let me put before you two questions. If in our last time together, last week in chapter 13, Jesus exhorted us not to betray him, not to put our guard down, not to go astray. He said it in a dozen different ways as he talked about the trouble that was impending, that we might be handed over to death, that we might be handed over by family. It's interesting that here, only a page later, a companion of Jesus is plotting to hand him over. An echo of the the times that Jesus was predicting, well, here we are in the middle of them. Not only are his disciples being, the, the man himself is being handed over by one of us. Of course, the disciples didn't know it yet. And the last chapter served as an exhortation to us not to leave Jesus. And I've said to you already this morning that if you're not, you will not stay with Jesus unless you're with him for his sake. Well, here in this passage, Jesus helps us out with this. Jesus offers us, by way of contrast, a dramatic contrast with all of the hypocrites and trouble and conniving and religious shadiness around us. He offers us a contrast between that and then one anonymous woman. And in this contrast, he doesn't offer us a direct exhortation, don't leave me, but he does offer us an example of what it looks like to stay with him. He does offer us an example, a nameless first century woman to follow. That's not to be missed. That only in chapter 12, two sermons ago, at least in the Gospel of Mark, only in chapter 12 we had met another nameless woman. There were many who went up to the offering can and threw their loud offering in so that they could be heard by all. And there was a woman who dropped two little pennies in. And Jesus commended her to his disciples. She gets it. She understands who God is. Look to her. Well, now Jesus says, look to her again. We've had an exhortation, and now we have an example. So, some questions. Because an example is always provoke good questions. So, friends, how much is Jesus worth to you this morning? How much is he worth to you? What indications might there be in your life that Jesus is heaven's treasure? The most valuable thing, person, 
there ever was and ever will be. We read this morning from Colossians chapter 1. We read these things to profess them because we believe them, but we also read them to believe them more. We read them together to hear each other say these things because that's one way God helps us believe it more. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is to say that he's made it all and he's the creator of it all and he's the ruler. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, which is to say there is nothing in this created world, visible or invisible, that is greater than, than Jesus. What indication is there in, in your life of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the preeminence of Jesus Christ over all things that he has given to you? No reason to discourage budgeting and planning this morning. Give yourself to a good budget. And give yourself to wise plans in life and in business and in every endeavor. In fact, this little flask that held by this woman was itself a budget. <laughs> this was her budget. What's your budget for the future? This is my budget for the future. What are your plans? They are right here in my hand in this flask. She was holding in her hand her security. And yet she held nothing back when the moment came. So what indication is there in, in your budget? In how you break your plans when an opportunity arises that Jesus is preeminent and he is, is worth it. No, I wouldn't give you a specific prescription this morning for how you can show the worth of Jesus to the world, but, but you can. And pray to him. You know, this woman here wasn't prepared for this moment on a dime. She wasn't prepared for this moment the moment before this happened. We might imagine that she's like others in our scriptures, Anna and Simeon, who who spot Jesus when he arrives because they're expecting him and anticipating him. Here he is in the house and her mind and heart is filled with the scriptures and she knows what she's got. You'll be willing to do something costly and risky and sacrificial for Jesus when he's on your mind and when he's on your lips and when he's on your heart and when he's in your, in your prayers. So how much is Jesus worth to you. Well, there was a warning in the last chapter, and thanks God, Jesus doesn't only give to us warnings, but he gives us examples. He gives us visions of what it looks like, and he gives us commendations. Notice with me that in verse 9, Jesus says, and truly I say to you, which is another way of saying, everyone listen up, so everyone listen up here. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So here is this nameless woman from the first century, and we're talking about her this morning. 
and were giving an hour to her. Jesus was worth something to her, but in the memorial that she set up for Jesus, Jesus has turned that into a memorial to her. So maybe it's this morning that your heart is in pursuit of some career or some achievement or some person in this world, that the horizon of your life, although you come to church, really is the world that you inhabit in this life. Well, I promise you, as Jesus indicates here, that as you shift your affections and your desires and your dreams and your hopes to Jesus himself, the king of life and life himself, that he commends you for it. It's not that you find your worth in Jesus and you ascribe all worth and wonder to Jesus and then you lose everything. No, here these other characters in the story have lost everything. In terms of the pages of history, they're good and forgotten and they're in the dust and we don't know a thing about them except they Well, in this case, if they are disciples, we know a little bit about them. And if they're just people in the house, we've lost their names to history altogether. But here her name, her life is not forgotten. And what she's done is told in memory of her. So how much is Jesus worth to you this morning? That's a personal question and you need to answer that question. That wasn't answered for this woman by the home she grew up in. She doesn't inherit this. This is her on the spot, in the moment, attributing all worth and praise to the Lord in front of her. Another question for you. What beautiful thing will you do for Jesus? What beautiful thing will you do for him? I don't know what that needs to be for you. We need to say it depends on what you have, what the Lord has given to you. It depends on where you live. It depends on the time you've got. It depends on the talents that have been given to you. It depends on the human treasure that is yours. If she didn't have an alabaster flask on the moment, she wouldn't be wrong for not securing one and then anointing Jesus's body. Now, it depends on what the Lord has given to you and it depends on on what you have. It also depends a bit on on the moment in self. We know the moment that she was in. She was visited by Jesus and she was visited by Jesus in this situation with, on this occasion with the Passover impending, with hostility picking up. And it may well be, as we've suggested, that she perceived that Jesus would be heading to death And so she got out that ointment which would be used for her own burial if she did not marry or a burial for somebody were it her dowry. And she pours it over Jesus as to anoint his body for his own death. And would you know that as Jesus is then arrested and as Jesus is beaten and as Jesus is crucified, it never has a chance to be prepared properly for burial. He's left there and his his companions seek him for a burial. But God is putting this story together in a perfect way. And God has put her in this house with Jesus at that moment. And her own piety and sense of her relationship with God, it seemed apparent that a certain sacrifice was appropriate for her right then, given what God gave her and given 
the moment. You know, in our own life of our own church, there have been moments where the things that God has given us, we've, we've given in sacrificial ways. And I don't know who that was and to what extent, but we're on a property and this church had to move to this place for strategic reasons before all these neighborhoods were put up. And we can thank God for saints that, that, wasted, them, that wasted their livings to some extent on this building we're sitting in right now that wasted their livings on the children's wing and wasted their living on, on the fellowship hall in the back, that wasted their living on a, on a church plant that we've sent out. And no doubt, some of us will waste part of our living on this endeavor we're putting our attention on to see the Rio Malayu come to be Christian instead of Muslim. And we'll hear of a Bible study meeting and a conversion and, and maybe a church established and pastors being trained and maybe not in my lifetime. But it's going to take checks. It's going to take savings. It's going to take money. And we're going to give ourselves to it. And we'll trust the Lord, each of us, with what the Lord has given us and given the moment in our life and the moment God has put us in. So we'll keep our eyes out for it together and we'll, we'll give our time and our talent and our treasure to these things. A dear friend uh, and couple friend of Christy and ours comes to mind. Uh, and it's at another church in another place. They owned um, a dentist office in town and they were successful in their endeavor. And that dentist office had been doing just fine. And they had merged with another company and working very hard and late hours. And we were aware of and praying for this work. And they were also known for taking two weeks off once a year and going to Guatemala to help lead a medical missions trip as part of a community health evangelism effort among an indigenous people in the woods, a people rejected by those in the city who couldn't get health care of almost any kind. But a group of 10 to 15 from the church, led by some pastors and, and some others, including this couple, two that worked on people's teeth to make a living in the United States, and maybe a good living. They'd worked hard and given themselves to a good amount of education and business building to do it. Well, they took their vacation and they shut the office down for two weeks and they disappeared into the hills of Guatemala among, for that church, the Rabanal Achi. And every year they'd go back and they'd get to know the names of the little kids in the village so they'd see them grow. And welcome their babies as they married and had children and see conversions over time. And it wasn't missions tourism, if that's what we call it. You know, an edifying, encouraging, memorable experience. If I'm going to give up my vacation, it might as well be for some, some enriching cultural experience. No, it wasn't that at all. It's that they'd found their treasure in Christ and by closing the office for two weeks, it was that couple and what God had given to them and that moment in the life of that church, that kind of a thing was just appropriate. It's another business owner who owns a print shop and had built his business over the course of 30 years and had business savvy 
And when one couple from the church was sent overseas to, to preach the gospel among and seek to establish a church among a, an unreached people, closed country to the gospel, this gentleman would fly over once or twice a year just to spend lingering time with the couple there, to see that their marriage was strong and to see that their business was in a good shape. Their work wasn't entirely supported by the business. That wasn't the strategy. But part of the strategy was to have a legitimate reason for being in the country, which involved a business. And he'd counsel them and coach them and help them on their feet into a stable place with this business. And he would leave his own business in order to do that and swipe his own card in order to do that. And there are countless ways that men and women in this church have done the very kinds of things over the years and sending out our sons and daughters. I can't help but think of Mark and Rachel Hansen and their family. You know, all the things that these dear saints who go to other faraway places could have done with their life. Don't ever think that a missionary couldn't have done something else. Don't ever think that somebody who we send out one day to a faraway place isn't in some way I'm not sure how to say this um, bottom of the barrel <laughs> I don't want anyone who's on the field to think anyone ever thinks that because I never hear anyone talk like that my point in this is to say that we send our best and you know what if you want to go You are our best. And if we can equip you and strengthen you theologically, and if the Lord has appointed that your particular gifts and this moment in your life and what God has given you meant that you won't send, but you will go, then in sending you when that time comes, we send our best. And the men and women I know in foreign places, including Rachel and including Mark, including Jonathan and Sarah, and I could keep going. You know there are names out of this church. They're brilliant people. Absolutely brilliant. Bible translators? You know what it takes to translate a Bible? (laughs) You You could perform a whole lot of surgeries in the time and with the kind of talent that it takes to enter a tribe that doesn't have a language to study linguistics for a decade ahead in order to surgically understand what's going on in the way these people talk and how their language has been put together in order to write a script, in order to teach the script and the whole process, forming relationships and embedding yourself within the culture of that people, then to translate the Bible in such a way that it could be read and understood and believed. Humanly speaking, it is an astonishing feat. And that anyone would give their life to do it is proof that there is light in this world. In this little, in this street corner where we've been staring into this house, it has been dark. It's dark across the way in Jerusalem. It's dark when Judas leaves the house. But the light is on in the house. And this woman who breaks the flask and pours the ointment on Jesus is proving to you and I that Jesus is worth Everything we've got. And it doesn't mean we all give the same thing in the same way. 
There are some of you we would never send to translate a Bible at the other side of the world. You don't have what it takes. But there's something you know you've got. And maybe somebody in this church does need to decide they're going to give themselves to linguistic studies. And eventually, five years from now, ten years from now, be sent out from this church to translate a copy of the scriptures. I don't know what God has in store. I just know we're supposed to talk like that. Because this is crazy what we see here. And the disciples were indignant because it was crazy. This is extravagant. And so what extravagant, beautiful thing will you do for Jesus? I don't know. But you can pray about it and you can get to it. And let's get to it together. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are a God who is worth our very lives, for you are the God who has made life and, and given us life. And you are the God who makes us to see that you are indeed life. And we confess that we, we have not given ourselves to you extravagantly like this, this woman. We are challenged by this, and yet we accept what she has done, not as a rebuke from Jesus, although perhaps we need a rebuke if we find ourselves on the page as one of those indignant or, or betraying. No, Father, we thank you that you give us this story to encourage us and to give us a vision of how great Christ truly is. To help us to see all that he is worth, even when he is heading to his death. In other words, the greatest failure the history has ever known on this planet in that moment. And we remember your words to one church through Paul. And we hear them for ourselves. And we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. In order that through his poverty, we this morning might be able to say that we are indeed rich. Father, we came in this morning caring about what people think, And then what they say about us, we came in this morning saying certain things about ourselves. Father, help us now as we ponder this passage and as we we sing aloud together of all that Christ is for us. Help us to care chiefly about what you say about us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.